access the Lord in the house, don't you? Amen. I'm going to ask Matt to go ahead and finding the rock. You're free to go right back there. And God bless you in your class tonight. Give my hand, everybody. There's, they're plowing through. And thank you again, Barry and the praise team. They did a great job. Give my hand one more time, can you? All right. Now, we're going to get into the book of Mark, and I'm going to share with you out of Mark chapter 13. And we're going to dive right in because we've got a, a lot to cover tonight, but it's really good stuff. It's eye-opening stuff. Jesus is not only the greatest philosopher in the history of the world, but he's the greatest prophet. He's the prophet of prophets. Though they were all 100% accurate, Jesus is the one who raised up the prophets, and he's the one who put the Word into the prophets' mouths. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Amen. Amen. Amen? So tonight we're going to talk about the end times. And let's look at Mark 13, first four verses, then we'll dive right in. As he was leaving the temple, and by the way, for the last time, he never entered the temple again. One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Now, that's a mind blower. Every one of them is going to be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately, and they asked him, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is a prophetic word in your word, and that Jesus saw down the tunnel of time to the end of days. And Lord, we thank you for arming us with that word and with that knowledge, so that these times don't take us unaware. Open our eyes Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what Jesus is saying to the church tonight. Now, can you say with me, Lord, I receive your word with meekness in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn to your neighbor and tell them, you better perk up and listen. The end is coming. Now, before we go to where we left off last week, let me just give you a quick sweep of uh, what we shared last week, that Jesus didn't really answer. In the book of Mark, he didn't answer the first question. He answered the second one. The second one being, what, what are going to be the signs of the end? What are the signs of the end? Because Jesus had, had made a mind-blowing statement. He pointed to the temple that they were bragging on, and it was a magnificent temple. Remember, it was begun by Ezra, way back in the Old Testament, and carried all the way through to the days of Herod the Great, the same Herod that slaughtered all of the male children two years old and under, that Herod. And Herod had finished out the temple, and it was one of the wonders of the world, magnificent. And I shared with you last week just the size of the stones that were involved, that even a modern-day uh, crane could not carry them, could not pick them up, could not hoist them. They were huge, like the pyramids. We don't know how they carried them there. 
We don't know how they were laid down. They didn't need any mortar. They were so huge and they fit into place. They were, they were beautiful, uh, beautiful in color. It was a magnificent structure. And Jesus pointed to this and said, not one stone is going to be left on another. And they just couldn't get a hold of that. It was an amazing prediction. Now, around 70 AD, it all took place. Uh, Titus and the Romans and the Jews came into conflict. And Jerusalem was leveled. And that temple was completely dismantled beyond all ability to foresee this in the natural or even imagine it. It was dismantled. And the Jews were scattered to the four corners of the world. And there they remained until 1948 when Israel became a nation again. Moses predicted their scattering. And he said, the day is going to come when you lay your head down at night, you're going to wish it were morning. And when you wake up in the morning, you're going to wish it were night. So painful is going to be your existence. They were a people without a land, a people without a home, scattered, persecuted throughout history, everywhere they went, persecuted, mocked, ridiculed, shunned the Jewish people. Why did that happen? Jesus said, because you knew not or received not the day of your visitation. And I shared last week, you know, God visits all of us from time to time, personally, comes to us personally through his spirit, and he knocks on the door of our life. And if we give entrance to him and we receive the day of our visitation, he blesses us. But if we reject him, we walk into darkness every single time, every time. So it's important that as individuals, we receive his visitations. And as a nation, we receive his visitation. Nobody could have imagined this would happen to the Jews just a few decades after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. But it did. Just like he said, not one stone was left on another. Now, if he was so accurate with that, don't you think we can pretty much rest on his accuracy in the rest of what he said about the end of time? And that's just one example. And so we looked at this, and he said there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes in many places. And he said that's not the end. That's just the beginning of sorrows. Nation is going to rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Dad is going to betray son. Mother is going to betray daughter. There is going to be great uh, uh, tribulation, not the great tribulation, but great trouble on the earth leading up to the end. He said, you're going to see these things taking place. These are general signs that are the beginning of birth pangs, just the beginning. And we're certainly see them, seeing them, even in our own generation as a baby boomer. You know, I've seen, you know, been around and seen a lot of wars in my short lifetime. And before me, World War II, World War I, the Korean War, all kinds of wars that have rocked the world just since I've been around or just barely before. Jesus said that's the beginning of birth pangs, but it's not the sign of the end. Now, I shared with you last week that Mark records that Jesus talked about a the sign, a one sign a certain sign that when you see it take place, you can know for sure he is at the door. 
And I got to tell you, folks, when you look out there and you read the paper, if you know anything about Bible prophecy, you just read the paper and watch the news. It's like reading the Old and New Testament. It's coming to pass. But let's look tonight at the sign. And the sign is the abomination of desolation. Now, Jesus said, he who endures to the end shall be saved, remain under, uh, is what uh, endures means. And uh, so can we move, Marsha, to that uh, middle part where I left off last week? And let's take a look at now, according to David B. Barrett in his book, Today's Martyrs, and we talked about that last time, so let's, let's move ahead. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to get us. There we go. Here it is. The sign of his coming and the end of the age. What is the sign? The sign is the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now I want to quote Daniel and let's look at what Daniel said. So when you see the abomination of desolation, well this is Jesus' words, then we'll look at Daniel's prophecy. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Jesus said, Standing where it ought not, now follow carefully, Jesus' mention of the abomination of desolation is taken from Daniel 11.31. Now here is what Daniel 11.31 says. They shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Now follow carefully. This is Daniel, centuries before Jesus. And he coins this phrase, abomination of desolation. Now this describes a complete desecration of the temple. This happened following Daniel's prophecy in the time between the Old and New Testaments. It happened once when Antiochus Epiphanes, well there's a name, how do you come up with a short name for that? Hey, uh, Auntie. Hey, Epiph. But his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, and he desecrated the temple in Jerusalem in a horrible way after Daniel predicted this. He desecrated the temple by offering swine's flesh on the great altar and by setting up public brothels in the sacred courts. Can you imagine that? Here's where the Shekinah glory showed up in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and swine, bacon, ham, pig meat was forbidden to these people, forbidden to the Jewish people. So what did he do? He walked into the temple, and he offered swine's flesh on the great altar, and, by, and set up public brothels in the sacred courts before the very holy place itself, he set up a great statue of the Olympian Zeus and ordered the Jews to worship it. Now, as bad as this was, it did not completely, and follow this carefully, this is really important, it did not completely fulfill the prediction of the abomination of desolation because Jesus said these words long after Antiochus had done this. Jesus said, you need to watch for an abomination of desolation and he said that way after Antiochus Epiphanes had gone in and offered swine flesh and set up the brothels in the sanctuary or in the courts of the temple. So Jesus was not looking back 
he was still looking forward to this event. Now the Hebrew word translated abomination in Daniel 11.31 has the idea of a filthy, disgusting idol. Okay? But it's more than just an idol. First, it's an idol set in the holy place. Now, you know, you and I, when we hear the holy place, we don't really, that doesn't do to us what it did to the Jewish people. But this was such a holy place that when the priest would go in to make the annual sacrifice for sin, they would tie a cord to his ankle so that if he went in there and did the wrong thing or said the wrong thing and God struck him dead, they could drag him out by the cord so that they wouldn't have to go in and risk their own life to go into the presence of God, the Shekinah presence that was there in the Holy of Holies. It was into there Antiochus brought swine, a mockery of God's word, a mockery of the God of the Hebrews, and set it there. And then this temple, or this idol of Zeus, and he took it in there. And so, very, very serious here. Jesus said it's, it's, it's more than an idol. At first, it's an idol set in the holy place of the temple in Jerusalem, standing where it ought not. And as Matthew puts it, standing in the holy place. Second, it's a filthy, disgusting idol that brings desolation. It's called the abomination of desolation. Desolation meaning nothing and no one remains in the temple. It brings the complete and total devastating judgment of God when this happens. It's important to point out that this is not merely an idol uh, set in the Jewish temple. Passages like Jeremiah 7.30 and other passages describe abominable idols in the temple, but they are not the abomination that brings desolation. That's what Jesus had to watch for. Again, something like the abomination of desolation almost happened again in 40 AD when Caligula, you've heard that name, was the emperor of Rome. He was crazy, baby, and totally depraved. And Caligula was a madman, decided to set up a statue of himself in the holy place of the temple of Jerusalem. He set the statue, or he sent the statue by ship, and on its way down to Jerusalem, he died before it arrived, and it was never set up. Or it would have been an abomination of desolation again, another idol in there. Essentially, here's what we're talking about. The abomination of desolation speaks of the ultimate desecration of a Jewish temple. An idolatrous image in the holy place itself, which will inevitably result in the judgment of God. It is the abomination that brings desolation. Now, you need to know tonight, it has not happened yet. Not what Jesus was talking about, it's still future. The abomination of desolation is the object of religious nausea and loathing who has to do with desolation, one commentator wrote. The Hebrew expression used in Daniel describes an abomination so detestable it causes the temple to be abandoned by the people of God and provokes desolation. Now, believe it or not, Paul the Apostle chimed in on this in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verses 3 and 4. Here's what he said. 
Pay close attention. Now we're getting to where it matters to you and me. He said, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed. The son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So that, watch this, he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God or stating that he is God. Now, Paul says by the Spirit of God in the New Testament way back 21 centuries ago, he said, here's what's going to happen. The end of time is not going to come. Until a man, not an it, not a thing, it's not neuter, it's a man, anthropos, a man, walks into the temple, sits in the holy place, and says, I am God. That man is the Antichrist. That is the abomination of desolation. Daniel 12, 11 gives additional insight. From the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days until the end. Now let me make this simple for you. When this sign is set up, the end can be determined. When this happens, the end of time as we know it can be marked down and checked off. It is... Almost three and one-half years to go before the triumphant return of Jesus to this earth in the second coming, when the Antichrist sits down in the temple of God and says, I am God, there will be three and a half years before Jesus splits the sky, lands on the Mount of Olives, it divides in half, and he takes over the world, ushers in the millennial kingdom, and rules the world with a righteous scepter, And it is not a vote. He's not Democrat. He's not Republican. He is not a politician. He's a king. And he's going to come back to lead. Then we will have peace. And only then we'll have peace. Now I want to show you this goes all the way back in the belief system of the church. Look at this. The early Christian writer named Irenaeus wrote about this in the late 2nd century. Look what he said. Quote, but when this Antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world. He will reign for three years and six months and sit in the temple at Jerusalem. And then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds, in the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire, but bringing in for the righteous the times of the kingdom. And he wrote that 19 centuries ago. This is not a new revelation that Tim LaHaye came up with for his book series. This goes all the way back to the belief system of the early Christians. They knew this was coming. Let's go on. When Jesus describes the abomination of desolation, there is the presupposition, very important here, there is the presupposition of an operating temple in Jerusalem. It's got to be there. How can there be an abomination of desolation if there's no temple? It's got to be there. You can't have it without a temple. For centuries, there was only a small Jewish presence in Judea and Jerusalem. Their presence in the region was definite and continuous, but small. It's unthinkable 
that this weak Jewish presence could rebuild a temple. Therefore, the fulfillment of this prophecy was very unlikely until Israel was gathered as a nation again in 1948. And if you were alive then and you knew Bible prophecy, you didn't come out of your room for weeks. This was huge. Okay? The restoration of a nation that the world had not seen for more than 2,000 years is a remarkable event in the fulfillment and future fulfillment of prophecy. One of the more fascinating developments in recent history is the focus of Jewish and Arab conflict over the Temple Mount, where a rebuilt temple must stand. There is a small but dedicated group of Jews right now who are passionately committed to rebuilding the temple. Now, I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know who's going to orchestrate it. But if you ever open up the morning news or the startlegram, and you see in there that something has happened and the temple is being rebuilt, lift up your heads, for your redemption draws nigh. And it will come. It'll come. Now today, you can visit what's called the Temple Institute in the Jewish quarter of the old city in Jerusalem. And there, a group of Jews absolutely dedicated to rebuilding the temple attempt to educate the public and raise awareness for a new temple. They're trying to replicate everything they can for a new temple, down to the specific pots and pans used for sacrifice. Israel is a nation again. Amen? And efforts to rebuild the temple are real. The main Jewish group leading the charge to rebuild the temple is an organization called Faithful of the Temple Mount, who say they will continue their efforts to reestablish the Jewish temple on the mount. One leader of the group said, quote, We shall continue our struggle until the Israeli flag is flying from the Dome of the Rock. Woo! In Israel, there are students being trained for the priesthood right now, learning how to conduct animal sacrifices in the rebuilt temple right now, being trained. Rightly, Christians get excited when they see efforts to rebuild the temple. At the same time, you've got to understand that the impulse behind the desire to have a place to sacrifice for sin, rebuilding the temple, is not the will of God. Because God's already sacrificed for our sin. He already sent Jesus to sacrifice, and, he, and, and he's the once for all, one and only, never need to be sacrificed again, shed blood. So their desire to do this is a statement of unbelief in who Jesus was. But it doesn't matter because God's already prophesied, God's already told us this is going to happen. Christians believe that all sacrifice for sin was finished at the cross. Any further sacrifice for sin is an offense to God because it denies the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Amen. Now, these words of Jesus have led some to believe that all Christians the church as a whole, will go through this time known as the Great Tribulation. And this warning must be for us. But Jesus promised to catch his people up from the earth and meet them in the air. Did you know that that's there? It's in first, I, I preach it at every funeral I ever do. I mean, I preach it all the time, but you can't do a funeral without preaching this. Because who you're burying, if they were believers, they're coming out. And so... 
And uh, he told us to pray. He, Jesus told us to pray that we would be counted worthy to escape this time and promise to keep his faithful from the time of judgment that would come upon the earth. He promised that. Jesus gave this warning primarily, I believe, as a specific amazing prophecy of events thousands of years before they happened, so the Jewish people during the days of the abomination of desolation would have a unique, powerful witness to Jesus and his word. Because here's what's going to happen. The Antichrist will come into power. I believe he's alive today. I personally do. I don't know who it is. I know it's not Bill Clinton. And I know it's not any other Western politician. I have always personally believed that it's highly probable, very possible, that he would rise up out of the uh, European Confederacy. He is a politician when he comes to power. He is very charismatic, very verbal, very persuasive, very hypnotic. And he takes power politically, and he does it by settling the horrific issue of the Middle East conflict. He brings peace the Middle East. Isn't it amazing? Who would have ever thunk it that when you read the Bible or when you, when you saw what the Old Testament said, say, 20 centuries ago, that one day the focus of the entire world would be right on that little dot on the world map called Israel, just like the prophets said. And that there would be a cry, peace, peace. Can anybody bring us peace? And every time I hear them say that, and they say it all the time, who in the world is going to bring peace to this mess in the Middle East? Because now Jerusalem and the Middle East have become the sore thumb of the whole world. Just like the prophets said. Just read Zechariah. That's what he said. And now that's the case. Three and a half years into his very brief political rule, he will begin to resent the Jews worshiping anything but him. Shades of Nebuchadnezzar, shades of many of the great Roman emperors uh, who wanted to be worshipped above any god. And he will walk into the temple three and a half years into his rule. He'll walk into the Holy of Holies and he will sit down and he will say, I believe via worldwide television, I am God. You will worship nothing and no one but me. When he does that, the second half of the seven-year tribulation will kick into gear immediately. And the wrath of God will fall in an unbelievable, unprecedented fashion. He is the abomination that causes desolation to come to the temple and to the world. Coming on the heels of the abomination of desolation, let's read it, great tribulation. Look at what Jesus said. For in those days there will be tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the creation which God created till this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord shortened those days, nobody, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. I've taught the book of Revelation. I'm probably going to teach it again, but I've got to tell you, the things that are released when the seals are open and the trumpets are blown in heaven upon this earth are incomprehensible. You talk about, they, they say baseball-sized hail is falling, you know, in different places uh, in, in Texas uh, tonight. 
the Bible describes hail the size of basketballs falling on the earth, mingled with fire, the sun being obscured, the moon red as blood, and you see whole bodies of oceanic water being poisoned with blood and poisoned uh, where everything in them dies and a third of the greenery of the earth uh, dies and is consumed. I, it, to me, it, it, it's, it's so clearly, or at least it looks like a nuclear blast to me. But whatever it is, it's bad. You don't want to be here. And according to Jesus and the Word, you won't. You won't. But the folks who are left here and the Jewish people are going to remember. Some of we crazy Christians and what we said, they're going to remember our witness. They're going to remember what we said about the New Testament, about the Word of God. They're going to remember what we were preaching and teaching. Don't you, you know that it's got to be a, a providential hand behind the, the Tim LaHaye series, left behind more books sold than anything in history. God is telling this generation so that many people will remember what they read when they are left behind. Tribulation such has not been since the beginning of the creation. Think about that. Jesus said this will be the most awful time in all of human history when we consider the massive calamities humanity has suffered through the centuries. This is a really sobering statement. Let me give you a couple of instances from history. In 1343, I've read books on this. It's amazing stuff. A bubonic plague, the Black Plague, started to sweep across Europe. Over eight years, two-thirds of the population of Europe was afflicted with the plague. Half of these afflicted died. An almost incredible 25 million people died. But Jesus said this time of tribulation will be worse. Let's look at another one. Let me try this. Zbigniew Brzezinski. In his book, Out of Control, Global Turmoil on the Eve of the 21st Century, sets the number of lives deliberately extinguished by politically motivated carnage at between 167 million and 175 million people. Staggering. Most other statisticians are in the same ballpark, yet Jesus said the time of tribulation he's talking about would be worse. Let's look at another one. Unless the Lord has shortened those days, if the terrors of the great tribulation were to continue indefinitely, mankind would not survive. So for the elect's sake, the days were shortened. Jesus said, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, he's there, don't believe it. Nobody should be deceived about the nature of Jesus coming. It will not be secret or private, and it won't be a different Jesus. In the midst of such tribulation, men will be tempted to fall for false messiahs as they are right now. But take heed, Jesus said. He said, see, I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus told this to all of his followers as a warning so they would take heed. Jesus has reasons why he wants us to take heed, anticipating and being ready for his soon return. Here's why. It has a purifying effect in your life. If you really believe he could come at any time, you walk in straight. If you believe he could come at any time. 
It gives us a sense of urgency. That's why we're out to win souls. We're going to do our part, all right? It makes us bold in speaking to the lost. If you know you're you're looking at a trainload of people headed to a, a cliff and they're going to fly off, you don't worry about what they think of you if you start yelling, stop, stop, get off this train and, and get where there is safety. It helps us keep a light touch on the things of this world. Hold it lightly. Hold the things of this world lightly. We should also remember that God has reason for the time he has established. If Jesus caught up his church to meet him in the air in, say, the 1970s, how many of you here tonight would have missed the rapture? I was pastoring in the 80s, and uh, boy, I'll tell you, this thing moved through. And they had this little pamphlet going around all over the state of Texas and the United States that Jesus was returning. What was the year, Kathy? 87, the 84, 1984. He's, and, and I had my people, some of my people in my church were out buying property so they could dig down in and, and hide from the tribulation. And they were quitting their jobs and selling their 401ks and going and having fun while they could because he said he's coming in 1984. And I stood up and I told him, you're going to be made a fool of. And some of them left the church mad at me. But then 1984 rolled around and the date. And I remember we were having church. Some of them were. And I said, don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. You're not going to know the date. But I just thought of that. Now, what, what if he had come a decade ago? How many of you would have been in that rapture? How many of you have come into the Lord since then? How many of us here right now are listening by radio would have gone through the great tribulation if the Lord had come then? We can see all the time, uh, uh, we can all see that the time is close. Any extended time is pure grace to allow more to come in before the horrific events of the great tribulation. On the heels of great tribulation, the return of Jesus Christ will take place. Look at what he said, and we're going to close. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers of the heavens are going to be shaken. Then they will see. Can you say this with me? Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. And in those days, after that tribulation, Jesus said that the cosmic catastrophes he describes here happen in those days, the days connected with that tribulation. The sun darkened, moon not giving its light, stars of heaven will fall, cosmic catastrophes. This is the groaning of all creation that Paul talked about in Romans 8.22. And it will come to one incredible crescendo before the return of Jesus. This kind of cosmic calamity is described in many Old Testament passages. You can write these down and read them. He's going to send his angels. They're going to gather together his elect. He will come with the saints in heaven and to, to gather those uh, who have come to Jesus during the tribulation and have survived. We call them tribulation saints. People will be saved during the tribulation. They will be. Jesus speaks more regarding the timing of these events, talking about the parable of the fig tree and uh, 
When you see the fig tree, when its branch has already become tender, it puts forth leaves, you know the summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. All right, that's enough for tonight. Let's go ahead and stand together, can we, everybody? And so what are we looking for, everybody? Watch the Middle East. Watch it closely. Pay real close attention to that Dome of the Rock, which is the Muslim site that has been built right where the temple used to be. Something's going to happen to it. Now, I'm just saying something's got to happen to it. And the temple will be rebuilt where it was. In the meantime, the hour is short. God is moving. People are being saved. There will be an end of time as we know it. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the prophetic word. We know what one single great sign will take place unmistakably pointing to your return. And now, Lord, we live in the times of the birth pangs, the wars and rumors and the famines and the earthquakes and the pestilences. Help us to shine our lights into this dark world. Use this church to touch the world. The world. In Jesus' name. Now, with our heads bowed, I want you to take a moment, and I want you to think, who do I know who really needs Jesus? Who do I know? And I want you to say, Lord, grace me to talk to them, to approach them in wisdom, to maybe invite them to church. Help me, Lord, to keep my eyes peeled on the certainty of your return so that I use my time wisely and my life counts for God. Thank you, Lord.